You are listening to a Hillbilly Horror Stories classic episode. For those of you who have seen The Conjuring 3, this is the actual accounts of the Devil Made Me Do It case that inspired the movie. Enjoy. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Welcome everybody to episode 95 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I am Jerry and I'm joined by my beautiful wife Tracy. Thank you sweetie. Hi everybody. Hope you're all having a great weekend so far. Yep, we are recording this one a little bit early because we will be at the Abbey Road on the River Beatles Festival. So we're going to record this one on Saturday night and uh, set it. So you'll still get it at the regular time, so you won't know any different. But uh, we may be short. If you leave a review on Sunday, we won't get that till next week. True. So that's the only thing that really affects that and uh, uh, Patreon. So let's jump on to reviews because we have an awesome show for you. And it's going to be a long show. So it'll be a good thing if you're sitting back after the holiday with nothing going on and a full stomach from a cookout. There you go. First and foremost, always, especially this weekend, we want to give a, uh, a big thank you to all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which uh, country you represent. Amen to that. We love you guys. We support you so much. And we pray for you every day. And I just want to say God bless you for keeping us safe. Obviously, this in uh, the United States is Memorial Day. So this is the uh, the day where everybody has cookouts and stuff. And let's not forget the real reason that the holiday exists. It's to pay tribute to those who lost their lives fighting for this country. Yes. uh, Amen. Let's not forget that. And I know you guys don't. And it's also this week, while we like to talk about our civil servants as well, it's EMS week, which yes. is the uh, emergency medical service, ambulances and stuff yes. uh, here in the U.S. I'm not sure if it's that way all over the world or not, but mm-hmm. if it, regardless if it is or it isn't, we celebrate you guys every week. Absolutely. You guys work your butts off out there, and well, we don't know what we'd do without you. So before we get into reviews and stuff, there's not that many. Um, I do want to talk about uh, the, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. That's always... I'm going to be at the front of the show from this point on. So if you're in the United States, 1-800-273-8255. And remember, if you need to talk to somebody, grab somebody. doesn't matter if it's us. doesn't matter if it's somebody from this hotline. It doesn't matter if it's a friend on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, trust me, there are more people out there willing to talk to you if you just give them an opportunity to talk to you than you realize. Correct. Please feel free to reach out to us. Absolutely. And as far as this show, this show is going to be, uh, like I said, a long one because we've got a cool story that's got a bunch of different facets. If you like rabbit holes, this is going to be the story. Uh, I always like to tell you guys occasionally how many pages of notes we have. This one had 33 pages of notes, which is the by, by far the most we've ever had. Yeah, that's about, a lot. <laughs> about three or four pages, but that's still. Yeah, that's there's only great. There's only been a couple even get past 25, and this one made it almost 35. So, yeah, so and it could have been 35 if I had write wrote bigger. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we, we hope you guys enjoy it. All right, let's jump into this. This story takes place in Brookfield, Connecticut. It's a sleepy little quiet town, about 13,000 people. On February 16th at 6.30 p.m. in 1981, this town had something happen that had never happened in its 193-year existence. Whoa. A murder. What? 193 years, they had never Never had a murder. Never a murder. Well, that is amazing. Well, and it's not just a murder. (laughs) Oh, man. Such a typical murder. It's a gruesome, bloody attack. Well, yay. And as if this murder wasn't strange enough for the town of Brookfield, the reason for the murder may have been even stranger. 
The murderer in this case, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, was possessed by a demon. His pending trial would also be a first. It was actually the first in the U.S. A trial where the defense was the devil made me do it. Mm. That's pretty wild. So we got a lot of stuff on tap for you. So have I piqued your interest yet? Yeah. So since they've never had anything to deal with like that in their town, they probably didn't know first off how to deal with a murder period. And now they got to do it because the <laughs> devil made him do it. So they're in for quite a challenge. This story's got so many facets that I wasn't really sure exactly where I wanted to start at. You've got a murder in a town that hadn't had one in almost 200 years. You had a trial that was the first of its kind where someone tried to use demonic possession as a defense. You had the possession of the murderer himself. So I decided where we were going to start uh, is where it all began, which doesn't even involve any of the topics we've already mentioned. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This is going to be exciting. Now, we've done lots of stories that involved hauntings, and we've done some that involved possession, right? Yes. The events that led to the possession of Cheyenne Johnson, and the reason I'm going to refer to him as Cheyenne the rest of the way, because his name was Arnie Cheyenne, and his friends called him Cheyenne. So that's what we're going to refer to him as Cheyenne Johnson. But the events that led to the possession of Cheyenne Johnson and the murder of uh, Alan Bono in the subsequent trial sounds more like the normal stories that we do on this show. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, what makes this whole story incredible is that it doesn't stop with the initial story that we're going to tell. Most people will agree that the aftermath of this initial story is more fascinating than what we're going to start with. Okay. But you got to go there before you can go to the rest. So here we go. In 1980, the Glatzel family moved into a peaceful little town of Brookfield, Connecticut. It was Carl Sr., the dad, Judy, the mom. Debbie, who is the oldest daughter, Carl Jr., not to be confused with the restaurant. You're like the Hardys. I know, babe. (laughs) I got you. Okay. (laughs) And David, who was 11 years old. David's going to be the main focal point of this part of the story. Now, shortly after moving in, a series of bizarre occurrences started happening, and this would mark the beginning of disaster really that's about to take place in this whole family's lives oh man so i already feel bad for him there or you're gonna feel worse because it starts off with there's a water bed in the house oh you didn't like i loved our water bed it was fun you couldn't wait for me to get rid of that thing well at first it was fun (laughs) matter of fact you made me get rid of it (laughs) anyway there was a water bed in the master bedroom that was left there by the, the previous tenants And everybody kind of, you know, took turns laying on it and laughing about how weird it felt and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. David, though, he wouldn't even try it. He was a little overweight. He was really self-conscious. He had black hair. And he just kind of tried to stay away from things that would make him feel queasy. That was kind of like a little thing. Oh, yeah, make his stomach So he figured that might, you know, be the case. Might do it, yeah. Now, later that day, though, he said that something pushed him onto the bed as he was walking past it. He looked up and he said he saw an old man in a torn plaid shirt and blue jeans. Said he had very coarse skin. And he said that the man pointed at him and said, beware. Almost kind of growled, beware. Hmm. Before pushing him on the bed. Wow, that's pretty creepy. (laughs) Now that's a strange story in itself. Well, yeah. And the Glatzels, they just kind of played it off as, you know, overactive imagination. So you think that ghost or whatever it was knew he didn't want to get on that bed? I would think so. And he just made him get on that bed? I would say so. So like, quit being a puss and get on that bed? <laughs> I don't know if that was the mentality of the said ghost or entity. But that night, David saw this man again. This time, though, he said his skin was burned and black. Oh, my. And he was barefoot this time. And David said that he had no feet. Uh, he had more like hooves like a deer. Oh, gosh, darn. So the family, you know, this wasn't like bedtime. So the family is talking about this uh, downstairs at the kitchen table. And shortly after this second visit, I guess he decided I need to tell somebody what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
Now, David had always been an honest kid, and he wasn't into any kind of horror or scary subjects or anything like that. So this definitely was out of character for him to even bring up something right. like this. David's situation would get progressively worse. He would wake up all hours of the night crying uncontrollably. His claim is that the old man was visiting him in his sleep and that he had black eyes, features more like an animal than, than a human person, sharp, jagged teeth, pointed ears, and hooves. Ooh, that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> David then said the entity would continuously warn him that if they moved into this rental house, they would be harmed. Oh, really? Well, wait. What rental house? The one they're in right now? Yeah, they. this one, yeah. I thought they were already moved in. Well, they, technically they were, but oh. I guess. He's just like saying, look, yeah, maybe you know this, what's good for you. This demon probably didn't know the technicalities of the lease or something. <laughs> he probably did. So these visits He kept, needs to have the facts. <laughs> that's right. These visits kept happening, and before long, um, they were happening in the daytime oh, as well. Oh, gosh. Now, David said that the entity said that he was the beast. That was the name he gave, the beast, and sometimes he would refer, refer to himself as the master. Mm-hmm. He would take on the appearance of an old man with a white beard dressed in a flannel shirt and jeans. That sounds That sounds nice. okay. Sounds like my pap, my daddy. Your dad, I've never seen your dad wear a flannel shirt. Oh, my dad wears flannel shirts. He said that uh, the entity would growl at him and speak in foreign languages to him. He also threatened to steal his soul. I can imagine how that would make you a little upset. Shortly thereafter, David began to experience... Um, I guess, unexplainable strange wounds, mm-hmm. such as like scratches, cuts, and bruises. Oh, wow. On his body? Yeah. And his parents saw that? Did they see yeah. it? So his parents were, well, apparently, as we'll get into a little bit later, apparently Carl Sr. Um, didn't believe in any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So everybody else was on board, but Carl just said, He just wasn't going to have it. You know, that's not what the deal is. So, but then the night terror started worsening to the point that, that he would wake up screaming, uh, it like he was horrified so his Poor mom baby. yeah his mom uh, said that she could see her son being thrown around like a rag doll she could see him being choked by invisible hands and see the marks and stuff around his neck there's nothing worse than a ghost bully <laughs> yep. do you feel me that's true i am familiar with that just rude David also changed in other ways. He gained 60 pounds in just a few months. What? Yep. He started being, um, like, really aggressive. He started growling. Oh, my goodness. He was kind of withdrawn from kids and stuff at school. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they started picking on him. Well, probably. Uh, The Glatzels knew that police couldn't do anything about it, so they decided to reach out to the local Catholic church uh, they've reached out for a priest at St. Joseph Roman uh, Catholic Church there mm-hmm. in town. And he came by the house and he did a, a ritual cleansing of the house, but it had no effect whatsoever. The f- phenomenon just continued. Now, this family's desperate by now, right? So they, they begged the church for help. So they referred to two people that live right in their own state, there in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And you may have heard of them, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Man, them heifers show up everywhere. Yeah. Well, this was early on. This was just right after Amityville. Okay. So this is before a lot of the bigger stories that we know about. Ed Warren, of course, is a demonologist, and Lorraine is a medium. Uh, the Warrens' arrival kind of made everything ramp up. Oh, yeah. House, as you can imagine. Like, and probably really more real. <laughs> right. How did Dad feel about that when they showed up? He didn't really say about how Dad felt. It didn't, it, the Dad doesn't get talked about very often uh-huh. at all during any of this. Uh, David began having seizures and fits about this time. He would have convulsions that required him to be restrained and would snarl, hiss, and spit at people. Mm. It sounds like UofL fans. I'm just saying. <laughs> he was known to suddenly start reciting... Verses from the Bible and uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, which both of those are kind of, it's an odd combination of the two. He would also speak in voices that were not his. He would speak some of the Bible verses in Latin, which he had never been exposed to. Hmm. And remember, this isn't like the internet was around. Yeah, of you course. Know, he wanted to be able to just start looking that stuff up. All right. David would complain about being hit, shoved, and choked by invisible hands. 
He would also flinch in pain uh, from an invisible knife wound, which would oh. come into play a little bit later. What a horrible way to live. Yep. He would attack his mom. He would uh, basically hit her and kick her. And she said that she just couldn't deal with it anymore. He actually attacked his grandmother with a knife. I don't know what came of that because there really wasn't anything else mentioned on it. The family started sleeping during the day because they had to use every bit of their energy at nighttime just to control him. So they were trying to take turns during the day sleeping so they would have the energy to, to deal with this night after night. God. The warrants were actually called in 12 days after his first visit from the old man. So all this stuff mainly started happening about 12 mm-hmm. days when the warrants got involved. So like the picked up, picking up weight and all that stuff, that was some of that took place after the warrants had already been on the case. Now Lorraine said that she talked to David for the first time and she could see a black mist form right beside him. And right after she saw the mist, he started complaining about choking and she saw red prints on his neck. I don't know how that kid handled that. I guess if you don't have a choice, you don't have a choice. Mm. So they said that there were warning signs that when he was uh, uh, the beast was about to take possession of him. They said his, his head would lower to his chest and then he would slowly lift it. And when he did this, his features would be contorted and he would be snarling. And then he would let out some, you know, kind of a hideous laugh or mm-hmm. so. Yeah, like mine? Scary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they said you could only see the whites of his eyes. Like there were no pupils. No pupils. Or pupils, not pupils. Pupils could be. You say tomatoes. I say <laughs> tomatoes. Um, <laughs> the, the Warren said that uh, they saw a toy dinosaur walk on its own across the floor. They saw dishes uh, levitate. They saw rocking chairs fly through the air. And one time they said there was a cake pan that had cake in it. It flew up in the air and hit the ceiling and left... Uh, like icing all over the ceiling. Wow. That was a waste. It was. So the beast even called up David's brother, Carl, on the phone and told him to beware. Now, how did he know how to use a phone? I don't know. If they had caller ID back then, he probably could have figured it out because it probably came from a 666 area code. <laughs> <laughs> That's just, probably some, true. I wonder um, if there is a 666 area code. I don't know. I bet I, there's not. I bet there's not either. Hopefully not. David's sister, Debbie... Um, she claims that a green hand reached up from the floor and attacked her while she was in bed. And she said she's also seen the face of the beast. She described it as cold black eyes, horns, pointed ears with sharp, jagged teeth. And about this time is when she requested her 19-year-old boyfriend, Cheyenne Johnson, to come live with the family because they would feel safer. So that's how Cheyenne, the murderer actually got involved in all this. Mm-hmm. So the Warrens claim that David was possessed by 43 demons. Jeez. And they said that the reason they know this is because they asked for the demons' names, and he gave 43 different names. And some of the names, most of the names, were names that matched up with demons that were mentioned in the Bible and uh, and through his other studies of, of other uh, exorcisms and stuff like that. He's a goner. So the the Warrens went on doing uh, a series of exorcisms. Uh, they claim that the exorcism um, involved four different Catholic priests. The Warrens said that doing the exorcism, he would stop breathing for like long periods of time. Mm-hmm. And then he would sit up and do rapid series of sit-ups that he couldn't even do before his weight gain. But all of a sudden, in these exorcisms... He just went for it and did I think it. if they did enough exorcisms, he probably would have lost that weight. Yeah. That's my guess. Or at least had some hell of stomach muscles. Ooh. He had a six-pack from possession. So, that's not a good way to get it, though. <laughs> what was that? Uh, instead of six-pack abs, it'd be like yeah. <laughs> six-possession abs or something. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so they said he levitated at one time, and the priests were witnesses to this. And it was during these exorcisms when they determined the 43 demons and what came out. Now, in October 1980, the family and the Warrens contacted the Brookfield Police Department, and they reported that the situation was becoming dangerous, and they felt that the boy posed a threat to the family and to society, but they were mostly ignored by the police department. 
I mean, what are they going to do? Like, just take him and put him in a home somewhere? I don't know what they were expecting to have done, to be honest with you. Um, but they called, and, you know, that's on record that they did that. Mm-hmm. Now, Cheyenne Johnson, Debbie's fiance, really felt sorry for David because, you know, he seen what was going on with him. And he was also exhausted because of, you know, this yeah, happening every sleep. night. Yeah. So he started taunting the demons. And, you know, that always works out. He would shout at him on several occasions to take him instead. He said, come into me. Leave the little lad alone. I'm not scared of you. I'll fight you. And then David, at that point in time, he said, they're laughing at you. <laughs> oh, he did? Yeah, so apparently they didn't take his threat seriously. During one of these times where he was challenging the demons, he became terrified when he said he saw the demons and made eye contact with with the demons Mm -hmm. as he looked into David's eyes. Oh, man. And the Warrens had already warned him never to do those types of things. Don't tempt them. Don't try to aggravate them. Don't look into the eyes. Everything that they told him to do, he just pretty much ignored. So what happens not too long after that? Cheyenne wrecked his car. He wouldn't hurt, but he claims that the demon had uh, taken control of him and made him crash. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to fast forward to November 1980. Judy and Carl Sr. took their son to a psychiatrist to see uh, if there was anything they could do at this point. They said that he was completely normal, except for a minor learning disability. So they sent him to this special school for uh, uh, children that that had some issues, Mm -hmm. basically. Troubled kids, disabilities, stuff like that. Meanwhile, Debbie and Cheyenne, they decided to move out. You would think would be a good move. Turns out not so much. So Debbie works at this little um, Brookfield pet motel. It's a place where they groom dogs and stuff uh-huh. like that. Do little, I guess they board them, do yeah. some kindling and stuff like that. And the pet motel had an apartment over the top of them that was um, managed by Alan Bono. Okay. So he managed the place and was Debbie's boss, but he also, also lived there. managed the apartment. Mm-hmm. So they decided to go ahead and, and move in. And we're going to take a second right now to kind of t- tell you a little bit about Alan Bono because he's really not came into the story yet, and he's kind of an important figure. So Alan was 40 years old. He had been living in Australia for a while, uh, for about like 17 months, and was running a, uh, a plantation over there. Oh, cool. Then he moved to Florida where he was staying. His sister actually owned that kennel, mm-hmm. and she called him up and said, hey, will you come up to Connecticut and run this thing for me? And... You know, Alan didn't know anything about running a kennel, but he thought, what the hell, I'll go ahead and do it. And so he moves up there. And at the point that all this is taking place, Alan has only been there for six months. Okay. Running this place. He was short, stocky, loved to talk about himself. And Debbie and Cheyenne just kind of hit it off with him. uh, So they would hang out with him really often. Right. So now let's go back to Debbie and Cheyenne. Debbie became... Concerned because Cheyenne started to display strange and uncharacteristic behavior. He was normally really polite and even killed, according to her. Debbie had known him since she was 12, and this is a freaky story to begin with. He's now 19, so she's known him for about seven years. Keep in mind, he's 19, she's 27. Not saying that's horrible. Yeah. But they met when he was 12, and she was, what, 19? <laughs> 20. So there's like an eight years difference. Yeah. And apparently she was working at a grocery store. This has nothing to do with the story, but I'm, now I'm going to tell it. But she was working at a grocery store, and I guess there was a display that got knocked over, and 12 year old Cheyenne started uh, picking up the display and helping her. And that's how they met. Uh-huh. And then when he was 16, he asked her out, and she started, so they started dating when he was 16. So she was like, what, 24? yeah. So, I don't know about the laws in Connecticut, but, yeah, you know, I guess that the parents are okay with it. And she apparently became real good friends with his mom, and, uh-huh. and at one point, his mom couldn't work, and her and his kids, or his brothers and sisters, rather, they were kind of raising the kids and everything, because mom was having trouble doing it. So, there there is a big connection with the family there. So, now that I've completely derailed us, and that had nothing to do with anything, so we'll get back on on task. They said that that now that this they felt like this demon may have been possessing him as well, that he would become irate at the smallest thing and, and go into these trances 
during which he would snarl and convulse, and then afterwards he would have no memory of it. Oh, None geez. of the stuff ever happened before he challenged the demon. This is not good. No. So during several of these little episodes, he would shout out that he could see the beast staring at him. So afterwards one time, he didn't remember any of this stuff, and these weird trances become more and more frequency, and his behavior became more erratic. So Debbie feared that her fiancé may be possessed by the same demon that her brother was possessed by. Yeah, because she knew he called him out, right? Right. Right, and she's already lived through all this with her brother, so she sees the similarities. Now, none of Johnson's co-workers noticed any change in him at all, except for one time they said he kind of went ballistic and cut up a stuffed animal with a knife in like a little fit of rage. I mean... And they didn't really get into why or why yeah. there was a stuffed animal there or... Because this guy worked for like a tree service. So he was like a tree surgeon, which I don't know what a tree surgeon does. Yeah. But, but that was the only time, so they really didn't think a lot about it. Yeah, so it was no big deal to them. So on one occasion, Debbie said that uh, Cheyenne basically looked and said, the beast, there he is. And he started growling and he started baring his teeth and just stared straight ahead. Well, she said that she slapped him one time, but there was basically no reaction from him. So she slapped him again and he kind of came to. And uh, Debbie told him then, she said, it's gone into you. And she said he was responded with, oh my God, no. So now that brings us to February 16th, 1981. Arnie Cheyenne Johnson called in sick to work at Wright Tree Service. Uh, Debbie was working at the kennel. She was uh, actually working on a black French poodle. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me I don't get my facts, people. <laughs> <laughs> and Cheyenne's sisters, Wanda, who was 15, his other sister, uh, who was 13, and Mary, 9, were all there. They came to watch her groom because they just thought it was cool. Mm-hmm. Alan Bono was also there. Alan uh, decided a little later in the day that he was going to buy all of them lunch. So they went to this little bar called the Mug and Munch. It's like a restaurant bar. And Cheyenne and Debbie sat there and they had some wine. And they said that they had a little bit of wine, but Alan drank a lot. Oh, really? That's what they said. So after lunch, they all went back to the kennel. Uh, Cheyenne fixed Bono's stereo for him. I don't know what was wrong with it, so mm -hmm. I'm sorry if I failed you on those details. Debbie took... Um, the group out, the, the girls, she decided to take them out for pizza and left the two guys. So that's what they were doing then. Debbie said she told the girls to hurry up that they needed to get back. And Mary asked her, you know, why they needed to get back. And she was basically told that Debbie sensed something was going on. And she thought there was some kind of trouble. Mm -hmm. Which I don't know why she would have sensed that because everything was fine when she left. So when they get back, Bono urged them to go upstairs. He turned on the TV for them. And they, but they said as he's sitting there, he's kind of punching his hand, his fist into his open hand, just you know, mm -hmm. just kind of punching it, which means obviously something must have taken place while they were gone mm -hmm. because he was he seemed like he was kind of raging a little bit, and Debbie told everybody to kind of go go downstairs, but when she did this, Bono kind of grabbed Mary, which was the thirteen year old or fifteen year old, I'm sorry as she was trying to leave and wouldn't let go. So then Debbie walked over to him and he eventually let Mary go. Now Cheyenne at this time had been heading to the car when he kind of heard the commotion and saw what was going on. So he turned around and came back. He walked straight up um, to Bono and told him to let her go. Well, Wanda, the other, the 13 year old sister, she said that it just broke from there. She said that the children ran for the car. Debbie Glatzel got between the two men. Uh, Wanda said she was right there, still close, and she tried to grab Cheyenne and kind of pull him a little bit, but she said he was like a stone. You couldn't budge him. And she said this guy was like kind of thin and wiry, yeah. and mm -hmm. he shouldn't have very much strength, but apparently he had all kinds of strength here. So Wanda said that he started growling like an animal. And she said something, she, she saw something shiny flash in the air a few times, and then she said it just stopped. When it was over, Bono stood there for a second, still pounding his fist, fist into his hand. And she said then he just collapsed face up next to a five-inch blade that Cheyenne always carried. He used it for work. He had four or five tremendous wounds 
including one that extended from his stomach to the base of his heart. Wait, he fell on the knife? No, he fell by the knife. Oh. He was stabbed. Oh. That's what the shininess was. The shininess was. It was the knife. And Cheyenne stared straight ahead, walked into the woods in a trance-like state. So Bono died a few hours later at the local hospital, and Cheyenne fled the scene and was uh, apprehended several miles up the road shortly thereafter. Did any of the younger sisters know about what was happening in that with those two, as far as maybe being possessed or anything? No, they they just they just, didn't just, have they a just clue? know what they what they saw mm-hmm. at that moment. So I don't think any of them. I okay. mean, well, they so may the sister have, but never I don't know. told or no. anything. Okay. So they arrest him, they charge him with first-degree murder, and he claims he doesn't remember anything. Now, this case was already exceptional, being that it was the first murder ever recorded in Brookfield. Things then took a very bizarre twist almost immediately. The day after the murder, Lorraine Warren informed Brookfield Police Department that Cheyenne Johnson was possessed when uh, he committed this murder. Hmm. How about that? Well, I mean, that would answer why I don't remember. This caused a media frenzy, as you can even come close to imagine in 1981. Cheyenne's attorney, Martin Manella, received calls from all over the world wanting to know about the demon murder trial. Mm-hmm. He traveled to England to meet with uh, lawyers on two separate cases. In England, there was two different cases to where uh, possession was kind of used as a defense. Mm-hmm. One of them was an arson and one of them was a rape and both of them were um I guess worked out and never went to trial. So they were like plea bargained down, but there had been cases to where this had been used as a defense, so he went over there to try to meet with these guys and try to find out I guess some ins and outs on what they did. Yeah, so I guess it, it's a good thing it wasn't back in the early centuries because they would have took him out right then and there and just done away with him. Oh, I guarantee. So police investigated the Warren's claims that he was possessed, but concluded that it was straightforward, open and shut case, uh, basically a fit of rage and jealousy during an argument. Mm -hmm. That's the way they saw it. Police said it was a fight over Cheyenne's girlfriend, Debbie. Uh, Martin Manella offered to take on this case for free, which I find very interesting. Mm -hmm. His plan all along was to use this demon possession as a defense was widely publicized. So it, it made just the fact that he, he put it out uh-huh. that we're going to use this as a defense. It, it put it in all kinds of newspapers and on TV. So he planned on subpoenaing the um, priests that were involved mm-hmm. because shortly after the murder, the diocese actually stopped commenting on the case. They did acknowledge that they assigned some priests to investigate it. But it was more just to see what was going on with the boy. They claim that there were no exorcisms done whatsoever. And part of the reason was that the family refused to take the uh, the boy for psychological testing. Oh. Which is part of what you got to do. They want to rule yeah. it out before well, they... And they refused to do that. So they say there was no exorcisms done. Thomas Lynch, who's the chancellor of the uh, Archdiocese of Hartford says that 99.99% of all people that claim to be possessed are not possessed, and more than likely they're schizophrenics. So that's why it was important to get that part done. In April, Johnson's attorney gained permission uh, to to (laughs) analyze the clothes and tissue remains of Bono, who had been cremated. So it didn't do him any good that he got the rights to do that. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, there's nothing there. They said that uh, the absence of blood, rips, or absence of wounds would prove that demons were involved. Yeah, but didn't he know they? Did he not know he was cremated before he asked for that? I have no idea. Because but I would if, think, even if that was the case, I would think they would have kept the clothes and stuff. I would thought that would have been evidence. Well, and I'm sure that's there was plenty true. of pictures of the body. Yeah, because they take that crime scene photos when they get there. So as it got closer to the trial, the Warrens in Manila. I started drawing criticism from their peers saying that they were only involved in this for personal gain. The Amazing Kreskin, you ever heard of him? Yes, actually. 
he, you know, he's got something out, and I don't know if he, I think he might have died here recently. Yeah, I think he, I think he. But did. he had a deal out for like a million dollars, I think it was, if anybody could prove the paranormal for like the last thirty or forty years, mm-hmm. and he never had to pay it up because nobody could technically prove it. So oh, he was man. like one of these big skeptics. Of course, he's a famous magician. And, yeah. But the whole deal with him, he said the Brookfield case is a simple uh, means for the Warrens to prey on the superstitions of the public. Pebble. What's the public? <laughs> public. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's great. To prey on the superstitions of the public to build up their uh, annual lecture revenue. They have an excellent vaudeville act, he said. A good road show. <laughs> that's what he thought of the Warrens. <laughs> he didn't think real highly of them. But then you also had local attorneys that they said Manila was only representing Johnson uh, to rake in publicity and they didn't take the possession defense serious at all. Now, the Warrens, coincidentally, uh, their book, De- The Demonologist, started flying off the shelves after they uh, decided to speak out about this case. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, there was no paranormal activity. Just people were buying them real right. quick. So, well, that's... I just want to make sure you knew that I, when I said flying off the shelves. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I caught you. Okay. <laughs> so people also blamed the Warrens for using the case as a publicity grab, as you could imagine. They were already talking about book deals to the family, and they were talking about making millions for the entire family. Lorraine said that she and her husband worked closely with the church officials, and they viewed demonology as an extension of theology, and it would... Uh, defeat any purpose they had if they were being deceitful or dishonest. Well, yeah, whatever. there you go. Now, Manila admitted, on the other hand, to the press early that he thought handling this case would bring some good publicity and it would lead to some more lucrative cases down the road. So he, he already kind of admitted early that that was going to be the case. Now, during the jury selection, uh, which started in October of 1981, this thing moved along. Sounds like it. I mean, it. they already got juries and stuff in October, and this stuff happened in February. Yeah, I mean, nowadays, yeah. it's like a year and a half. Oh, I know. Thing. People flocked to see the uh, Demon Murder Trial, as it was called. The local Hilton Hotel was uh, booked for several nights in a row, so it couldn't get a room. The courtroom that held, um, uh, I guess, the case itself would only seat 70 people, so it wasn't really big enough for what they had going on. People in there were shoulder to shoulder, they said. Mm-hmm. Many thoughts... Um, many thought that he was going to use possession as an insanity defense. But instead, he said that his whole point was he was going to prove that Johnson actually was possessed and he was going to prove that demons existed. Manila's plan was to use recorded audio of the exorcisms that the Warrens and the priest had made. And he even had some audio of Johnson calling out the demon, challenging him. So that was part of the plan. He was also going to question the priest uh, involved and these priests, who coincidentally had all been transferred to other dioceses. Oh, <laughs> so nice. None of them were <laughs> there. And, uh, but just as fast as all this possession defense started, it was halted. Superior Court Judge Robert J. Callahan, who later became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, said he refused to hear Manila's planned argument. He said, I'm not going to allow the defense of demon possessions, period. So Manila tried to have um, Callahan like disqualified from the case, and mm-hmm. it didn't work. So oh, it didn't. Yeah, no, it didn't work. And Callahan said that he isn't sure whether demon possession uh, is possible. He knows it's not a legal defense, though, and he considered uh, evidence of it uh, irrelevant and unprovable and pretty much confusing to a jury. So there, that's why he was not going to allow it. Prosecutor Walter Flanagan and the police stuck with a simple explanation. Bono made an obscene remark about Debbie. The two men fought before Cheyenne Johnson stabbed him. That simple. Now the case wasn't exactly as exciting as the press liked it without the the demonology being able to be used. Yeah, but they weren't there. They don't know what happened. No, but it didn't matter because now all the stuff that the people were flocking to see wasn't going to happen. Well, I don't know. I, so, get, I get that, but you can't go by what the popo said because they weren't there. <laughs> so what Manila was focused on, well, you may find out different, though, as we get a little deeper in. Oh. So what Manila was focused on, uh, this whole demon prosecution thing, mm-hmm. 
And the prosecution, though, they blamed a different demon, alcohol. <laughs> you see what I did there? I did. A waitress at the Mug and Munch, which is an awesome name for a bar and restaurant, said that both men had drank a lot of wine. That evening, the group was in the apartment. Neighbors heard some noises from outside, loud noises, and they saw two people running towards Bono. The ambulance and the police, they get on the, on the scene of the crime, right? Mm-hmm. And they find Bono face up with four half-moon stab wounds below his rib cage. The ambulance driver said, and this was huge on this case, he said that he heard Debbie tell her father, because they were right, they were standing right next to the body, so he heard Debbie tell the father that, oh, daddy, he didn't mean to do it. You know how he gets when he's been drinking. Oh. That's what the ambulance driver overheard yeah. who had no reason at all to, to, to give say it anything, yeah. The police officer said that Debbie's brother Carl said Shane did it. Well, that didn't mean anything to me because if he was possessed, he was still the one doing it. Yeah. Despite Callahan uh, banning this whole demon defense, Manella still tried to put up, pull the four priests together and put them on the stand, and Callahan wouldn't allow it. So the priests, even though they were subpoenaed, he wouldn't let them get on the stand. Ed Warren, who was supposed to be the big shot witness in this, was kind of delegated as just a character witness. So all he could basically do is get up there and say Cheyenne was a good guy. That's all his involvement could be. The demonology stuff, couldn't use any of it. I didn't know a judge could do that, I guess even after you've been subpoenaed. Well, I guess because if he's not going to allow that defense, there's no point in, in well, listening to him. Because he I doesn't just, want to confuse the jury. No, I, I totally get that. I just didn't know he had the power to do that. Well, Because it's like not a fair, like, I would say it's not a fair trial. Because but, nobody got to hear the other stuff. Yeah, but if it doesn't involve science, they're not going to allow it in a courtroom. Hmm. Courtrooms are based on, that's not based on belief and conviction. Now, if you're talking about somebody's religion, I mean, if you're if your religion tells you to, you're a Satan worshiper, and your religion uh, tells you to make some type of sacrifices, say you sacrifice live chickens. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that you can't be taken to court and charged for animal cruelty because your religion says you can do it? Nope. In this country, you could still be taken to court for that. Mm-hmm. If you say, hey, I need to make a human sacrifice once a month, they're not going to allow you to do that based on your religion. So therefore, the same thing applies here because there is a demon, which would be a religious belief, they're not going to let that go because you can't prove you're possessed. Even about, you can show all the evidence in the world. It's like we talked about with ghosts and stuff like that. People will never believe unless they just believe. You can never convince a skeptic, you know, that ghosts are real because no matter what you show them that's proof, they're going, oh, that's not real proof. Yeah. Well, that's that's something else. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's why. And because you you can't physically put your hand on it and prove it. You know, I'd be like, you know, they would do the same thing if it was reversed. If it was a lady saying an angel told her to do something and it involved a crime, they wouldn't allow that either. Oh, so. well, that's interesting. So anyways, um, so back to Ed Warren, he was del- uh, relegated to just being a character witness, which was nowhere near what he thought he was going to yeah. be the, you know, the Star big shot witness, that yeah. could tell you this and that, mm-hmm. and the expert witness more or less. But Ed was uh, only on the stand for a few minutes. He said that Cheyenne was quiet and considerate and that uh, he found it hard to believe that he could do this. Uh, and then they said, he, but then he reluctantly stepped down. So I don't think he went quietly, <laughs> so to speak. Mm-hmm. Now, since he couldn't use his original defense, he decided to switch to trying to use the self-defense. And he said um, he was going to have Cheyenne testify for himself. And... Cheyenne said that Bono was drunk and he provoked the argument. He said that Bono ran at him with Cheyenne's knife. So Bono had the knife in this scenario. And he ran at Cheyenne and and Cheyenne said he doesn't remember anything after that. Now, after 17 hours over three days, the jury convicted Arnie Cheyenne Johnson of manslaughter, not murder, on November 24th, 1981. 
He was given a 10-year sentence, but was released on good behavior after five years. Wow. Cut in half. <laughs> like he did the guy. The guy. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so the case spawned the 1983 book, The Devil in Connecticut, which the Warrens were, I believe, involved with. Yeah. And an NBC movie called The Demon Murder Case, starring Andy Griffith. Yay! Cloris Leachman. And a very young Kevin Bacon. Oh my gosh. I need to watch this movie. Cheyenne married Debbie Glatzel on January 30th, 1985, a year before he was released from jail. They had two sons and two grandsons. Aww. And they live up in Connecticut still today. Well, that was a good ending, at least, to the story. Yep. And just for further knowledge, she's a CNA and he's uh, works for a construction company. Well, no kidding. He's a supervisor. Aw. So. Well, good for them. They said that he started off as a regular worker, got promoted to supervisor, and what they like about him is he's a huge cut up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I guess he's not possessed no more then? No. Well, then, let's get back on that topic. I don't guess there's been anything with him, but uh, keep in mind, this was 1981 when all this took place, but they said even... Uh, a couple of years after the fact that David, her little brother, was still having some incidents oh, happen, even yeah. though it wasn't as often. See, that demon was in jail, and he didn't like it too much. So, And let's talk about the financial side. And I'm going off memory here. I don't have any of this written down because somehow or another it slipped my mind until just now. But recently, within the last two or three years, you've got Carl Sr. and David, the, the who was the son... This book, that book, Devil in Connecticut, was released, and it was, like, re-released. And I don't remember what year, but it was, like, 2012 or so. It wasn't that long ago when it was re-released. And the Warrens said that they had paid the family, mm-hmm. you know, part for having this book. Well, some of the family members, uh, mainly David and Carl, said that all they got was, like, $2,000. That was for it? For the entire family. For the all, all the family? For the entire family, $2,000. So the whole family's still alive. I think most of them are, yeah. Mm-hmm. And now what Carl was pissed about is he said the book made him out to be like this horrible dad. Uh, yeah, but he wasn't even in it. Did, I mean. Well, they're saying he didn't believe in it. Well, the book, I think he was more prevalent, but saying that he didn't believe in any of the stuff and it was just all BS. And okay. David said that they were taking advantage of his mental problems. Mm-hmm. His, um, I guess, the fact that he was having a mental disorder back then and, and some personal problems. And he says that they were taking advantage of that situation. And that he says that he doesn't think he was possessed. He just think he had some mental issues. And, mm-hmm. and they wanted to morph that into more than what it was and turn it into a possession because they knew they could make money off of it, the Warrens, I mean. Well, what do you think? Uh, knowing what I know about the Warrens, I'm sure that's probably pretty close. What to it was, right. I mean, when you have a situation where let, let's take, let's say it is what it is. Let's say that David thinks he's possessed, but he's not. Maybe it is some kind of schizophrenia or something, a chemical imbalance. Who knows? But let's say that's the case. Well, now you got the Warrens in there constantly talking about this and talking about that, and they're talking about demons and the demons, demons, demons. So now everybody's consumed with the thought that it's demons. Now you got this 19-year-old kid, basically, and he's seeing all this. If he's not 100% right in the head, then maybe, you know, it's easy for him to talk himself into thinking he's possessed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and that's can terrible, cause some though. of the actions he was doing. Yeah. Now, let's remember, everybody's treating him like he's this great boy. But there was a situation at his work where he did lose control. Yeah. There was a situation where Debbie told her dad, you know how he gets when he's been drinking. Yeah. So, I mean, who knows? You know, I don't I don't know how much any of that was true. It very well could have been the two guys arguing over it. Mm-hmm. It could have just been a jealous boyfriend. Yeah. And al- you mix alcohol in with that and, you know, a little bit of jealous rage. Who knows what happened? Well, I mean, that's terrible to do that if that's what the Warrens did because, you know, this kid's like thinking probably, what the heck is wrong with me? But that's what the Warrens always did. I mean, you've got the situation with Amityville where most people believe that they were just told, hey, write the book and make it scary. You've got uh, The Haunting in Connecticut, which, you know, it's already came out to the fact that 
they the the author of the book said, well, I've only got you know so much of it. They're not really cooperating. And they said, well, you got enough of it. Make the rest up. Mm-mm. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I my feelings for the Warrens are I think they were just a bunch of I, I agree with the Amazing Kreskin. I think they were just a dog and pony show, and they found a way to be able to to make money. It's like I've said before on this show, you know, you don't just all of a sudden take a couple classes and call yourself a demonologist. Yeah. And then when they met, she wasn't a medium, but all of a sudden becomes a medium. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it can't happen. It just sounds right. very convenient. Yeah. That's just a shame, though, to drag people along with you like that, mess with their minds. Well, and if you remember also with um, the story with the parents, when we talked to uh, uh, Andrea, you know, she says that the Warrens were basically tracking her mom down and trying to get her to do this book and movie deal when... They didn't want to do it. And, you know, but that's, she was so far, that's all they cared about was trying to get book and movie deals. So, I don't know. I I, I can't, I just find it hard to believe that they had their, the good of anybody other than themselves yeah, for any of these stories. Yeah, that's what it sounds like, for sure. So, well, what did you think about that story? Oh, it's really interesting. I liked it. I just really feel bad for that child. That's terrible to have to, you know, if you did live through that, nor just, like I said, having the warrants try to convince you or tell you, you know, that that's what's happening or. But can, can a story have more involvement than what this one does? I mean, think about I, it. Yeah. You've got a possessed little boy, you've mm-hmm. got the warrants getting involved, you've got that possession leading to another possession. Which leads to a murder. Yeah. Which is the first murder that's happened in 193 years of a town's existence. And then going from that to a trial mm-hmm. where they were using possession as a, trying to use mm-hmm. possession as a defense for the first time. That's a lot of stuff for one story. That is a lot. But didn't that one, wasn't there a lady that was, used that? Well, yes and no. That was the one in Louisville. Yeah. Uh, Prospect. And we actually did the Patreon story right. for. And what her situation was is she killed her husband in self-defense, but she said that he was possessed, mm-hmm. and that's why she had to kill him. But she wasn't using possession oh, as a okay. defense. That's right. I knew something Per like se, that. but she was saying that was one of the reasons that he thought he was possessed, whether he was or wasn't, yeah. wasn't a factor, but he thought he was, so she feared for her life. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a pretty good story. So, well, so anyway, guys, we love you so much. Uh, happy Memorial Day. Be safe out there. Thank you for all of our veterans out there, and um, big thank you to the ones who never came home. Yes. God bless you all. We love you so much. And uh, we'll see you next week. Have a great day, guys.